0: Hello, my Rebels. I want to talk to you about two things. First of all, I want to talk about TikTok and why it is the digital crack cocaine of the app industry. But more importantly, I want to talk to you about inflation and how, bizarrely, Justin Trudeau thinks it's a good thing. What are you talking about? A good thing? Yes, I'll prove it to you. I'll show you the video. That's in today's show. But first, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's a video version of these podcasts. I want to show you these video clips of Trudeau saying it. I want to Show you a few other vids along the way. I mean, you can pick up most of it on the audio, I grant you that, but the video experience is better. We put a lot of effort into it, and we actually, in Rebel News Plus, we call it, uh, you get access to my daily video show as well as weekly shows by Sheila Gunn Reed, David Menzies, Andrew Chapados, and Nat and Kat. So please think of going to RebelNewsPlus.com and clicking subscribe. Eight bucks a month. And remember, that eight bucks a month is what we live off because we don't take any money from Trudeau. All right, here's today's podcast. To Tonight, almost alone amongst world leaders, Trudeau says inflation is good and you should expect more of it. It's March 30th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why i publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. I'm back on that app called TikTok, which is a terrible thing. It really is such good artificial intelligence. It sometimes feels like it's actually reading my mind. Here's what the artificial intelligence boss at Tesla had to say about TikTok. TikTok is scary good. It's digital crack. First time I feel attacked by AI in the brain. To which his boss, Elon Musk, replied, saying, TikTok feels like such an obvious AI artificial intelligence attack that it's annoying. I prefer to be Attacked by AI with subtlety, maybe a rose, some candles, wine, berry White, Woody Banter, that sort of thing. Do you know what they're talking about? It's the supercomputer figuring you out. What you watch, how long you watch it, what you skip over, what you click on. I, I don't know all the inputs they use. I don't trust TikTok because it's a Chinese app, a Chinese company. And The data they receive, it has to be disclosed to the Chinese government, that's the law in China. So when you're watching a TikTok video on your phone, does the phone watch you? Does the camera look at your eyes, for example, to see where you're looking on the screen? That would be powerful information. Does the app use the camera on the back of your phone to take an inventory of your house, your car? Does it use a GPS to find out where you are? what people you're with? Does it use the microphone to hear you talking? I don't know the answer, and it's not just TikTok, of course, they all do it. When you sign up for any app, really, the photo app Instagram, you usually just click agree when it asks you to read their terms of service, probably without even reading a line of it. I think we all do that. There's a contract you're agreeing to when you click agree, and all of them include the right to gather and share your information. That's how they make it work. When something is free, you're the product being bought and sold. I've done a show on this before how Instagram's terms of service, and it's the same with all of them, mean that they have the right, you're giving them a license, to use your photos for any of their own purposes, including to sell them. Do you doubt that includes selling them to the FBI or the RCMP? Or Do you doubt that everything you've said and done and photographed Hasn't been shared with the police and, frankly, China's police, either selling it to them or them just stealing it? What do you think powers all the facial recognition cameras that are popping up out there? It's photos, videos, scraped from all the world's social media sites. I saw it deployed against the truckers, by the way. I saw it a lot in the UK when I used to go over there to attend court for Tommy Robinson. The police took a facial scan of every person in the crowd. They had handheld cameras, they had trucks to do it. Here's a couple of minutes from a UK civil liberties group. Um, this is from 2020. Things are obviously much worse since then. Take a look at this.
1: Police and private companies in the UK have been quietly rolling out facial recognition surveillance cameras, taking face prints of millions of people, often without you knowing about it. That's biometric data as sensitive as a fingerprint. This dangerously authoritarian surveillance is a threat to our privacy and freedoms, and it needs to be stopped. But what is facial recognition surveillance anyway? Facial recognition surveillance cameras scan all the faces they can see in a crowd to check people's identity against a database in real time. This works by rapidly creating a biometric face print of your face, sensitive data that uniquely identifies you, much like a fingerprint, and comparing this for similar matches on a database. Now, these databases have been built from different sources, including CCTV images, the police's enormous database of 19 million custody images, which includes many thousands of photos of innocent people. Police intelligence databases, including innocent people with suspected mental health problems and political campaigners. But the possibilities are endless. Some facial recognition companies even claim to check faces against internet data in real-time, scanning social media sites like Facebook and Instagram to identify any profiles associated with you. Facial recognition cameras often look like normal CCTV cameras. They're anything but. Without your consent, and often without your knowledge, they subject everyone within view to a biometric identity check. Live facial recognition in public spaces is a mass surveillance method and a huge expansion of the surveillance state. It inverts the vital democratic principle of suspicion preceding surveillance, treating entire populations like suspects.
0: Yeah, imagine tying that into your vaccine status and then maybe a bit of of bank freezing for people who aren't where they should be or are where they shouldn't be. Very dystopian. I mean... TikTok is super fun, especially for kids.
2: Let me check my chest, my breath, right quick. There's no denying Charlie D'Amelio is an internet icon. Very crazy. In March, Charlie became the most followed person on TikTok with over 50 million followers.
0: All the kids are hooked on it. So the Chinese app is building up an unforgettable file of every American teen. Everything they say, everything they do, everything they film, every drunk party they go to, every offensive word or private joke, everything that is private on your app. Well, it's not private. Imagine recording what a 14-year-old says and does privately amongst his or her friends on the app, and that's all recorded, and uh, you have the matrix of his or her friends, and in 10 years, they're not 14 anymore, They're, they're grown up, they're done college, and at work and um, you're the Chinese intelligence service with all that info, who's an alcoholic, who's a drug addict, who had an illicit affair, who said racist things and can be canceled. Imagine the extortion and blackmail or just knowing who's friends with whom, mapping it all. That's AI, that's artificial intelligence, that's big data. And I think it's considered conventional wisdom that China is further ahead on artificial intelligence than the West is on that stuff. And I tell you that, because I'm embarrassed about being back on TikTok, but it is really like that digital crack that that Tesla guy says. It's like a, it's like it's reading your mind because their AI is so good. So I get things served up to me on TikTok that I don't even know that I want, but I, I realize I do want it. They, that's a very long and, and sobering introduction to a, a short comedy video that just, popped up uh, for me on TikTok. I want to show it to you. Every word I just said was, frankly, completely unnecessary to my story today, which is about inflation. But I've been thinking a lot about the dystopian world of tech. It really is as bad as the sci-fi movies, Minority Report, or or The Matrix said it would be. In, in some ways, it's worse, especially the numbing effect. In that way, it's, it's like Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. But here's a video that TikTok's AI served up just to me, because they know what I'm thinking about.
3: How is any young person ever going to own a home? It's maybe hate old people. I see a few of you in here tonight. I hate you. Because every old person in a city like L.A. or New York or London is the same. They're like, my house is worth $2 million, but when I bought it in 1981, I paid 11 raspberries for it. And every young person's like, I have nine roommates! We each pay $11,000 a month. Although I missed the payment last month, he took a toe. I walk in a circle now. Every single one of us is a lawyer except for Ted. He's a dog with rabies and we love to get him out, but his name is on the lease. And every single old person's like, I'm a librarian with a home at the beach. Go f- yourself.
0: Now, if you're a senior citizen, maybe you're offended by the joke. I don't think it was meant as an attack on seniors. I think it was meant as an attack on housing prices and how much worse things are now than previous generations had it. I mean, in 1950, you could turn 18, get a job at a factory, probably keep that job for life, use that job to get a mortgage, to buy a house, get married, have kids, etc., What that comedian says is absolutely true. Who could possibly afford to buy a home and move out and get married right after school? Many young people stay at home with their parents long into their 20s, even later. How are you going to get married? How are you going to start a family of your own if you have to do that just to live? But how can you buy a home when the average house in Canada is now $816,000? That's just the average That's up 21% in one year, one year. It was 677 grand last year. Now it's 816 grand. In the big cities, it is much worse. This is all from the Canadian Real Estate Association's website. You can go there and poke around yourself. Take Vancouver. A year ago, the average house in the greater Vancouver area was over a million bucks, 1.1 million. Now it's up 21% to $1.3 million. Try Toronto. It's worse. Last year, the average house was just under a million dollars, 986 grand, something like that, 966. It it has gone up a whopping 36% in one year, $1.34 million. There was a house on my own street that just sold for half a million dollars above asking price. That's that's some panicked family who knows that if they miss out on on this house now, it's going to go up thousands of dollars next week. It's just going to get worse. And that, in turn, has now surely panicked other families. This is a desperation time. If you're not in a house, how do you ever get in a house? You're falling further behind every day. Why are prices so high? It's a lot of reasons. Some are long-term reasons. There are some environmental reasons, such as building massive green belts that stop the construction of new housing in vast swaths of areas, Like, like the green belt around Toronto. Zoning rules do the same thing, in Vancouver in particular. Supply and demand is obviously the explanation for prices. If you bring in 350,000 new people to Canada every year through immigration, that's obviously adding a lot of demand to housing. And most of those folks go to the big cities, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, to a lesser extent. Here's a study prepared for Trudeau's Immigration Department obtained through an access to information request. On um, page three, it says, and I quote, Over the period 2001 to 2011, immigration accounted for more than $86,000 increase in the house price, 54.6% share of the total growth in the greater Toronto area. So nearly half the price increase during the decade they studied was because of immigration. Makes sense. But it's sort of a laugh to think that in those 10 years, housing prices only went up by about 160 grand, and immigration was responsible for half of that, because that was over a decade. It's gone up that much in the last year. We're a dozen years later than that study. I wonder if that study has been done again. I wonder what the stats are now. That's just plain supply and demand. If you bring in 350,000 newcomers every year, then the same next year, and then the same next year, a million people in three years, you're gonna (laughs) drive up housing prices, supply and demand. and by the way, you're going to drive down wages, too, because of supply and demand. It's just facts. This is just part of it. Housing, obviously a big part of it. But what about gas prices? What about food prices? Try filling up your gas tank for less than 100 bucks. Prices of everything are going up. Inflation hasn't been this bad since Trudeau's dad was prime minister. There's a coincidence. Same thing in the United States. It's reminiscent of the bad old days under Jimmy Carter in the 70s. Lots of similarities, actually. Under Carter, Russia invaded Afghanistan and saw America was weak. America was humiliated around the world, including in Iran. By the way, OPEC and the oil shocks. Jimmy Carter was a signal to the world to take advantage. America losing its courage. It's being repeated now. Joe Biden, well, he's blaming all this inflation on Russia, even though it began long before the war.
4: And now, second big reason for inflation is Vladimir Putin and gas prices. Not a joke.
0: Nice try. Gas prices uh, were going up, and in part because of supply and demand, Biden shutting down oil and gas in America. But at least by blaming Putin, Biden implicitly agrees that high prices are a bad thing. He's trying to blame it on someone other than himself. High prices of all sorts are problems, so high you might. Go without food. With regard to food shortages, yes we did re, re, so talk about food shortages
4: and, uh, and it's going to be real the, the price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia, it's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well including European countries and our country as well. That's nuts
0: Trudeau's saying that too
5: uh, You acknowledged earlier today Canadians facing higher food
2: prices energy prices amid global uncertainty right now we're seeing lockdowns in Shanghai. We know that means more supply chain disruptions. What are average Canadians supposed to do right now?
6: Inflation is not abetting uh, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, we've seen from the global pandemic uh, to uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, significant disruptions of uh, supply chains around the world, which is resulting in higher prices for consumers and democracies like ours, and resulting in significant shortages and projected shortages of food, of energy, in places around the world. This is going to be a difficult time because of the war, because of the recovery from the pandemic, and Canadians will do what we always do. We'll be there for each other. We will continue to be there for the world, even as uh, we support each other through these difficult times. Which is
0: extra weird, given that Bill Gates has bought up more farmland than any other person in the world. While he's promoting the idea that we eat bugs or synthetic meat. (laughs) It's that old World Economic Forum saying you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. But I want to talk to you today about Canada. Because unlike Joe Biden, Justin Trudeau is not blaming Russia for inflation. Higher prices, the price of gas. He's he's not blaming anyone. I mean, he is a little bit, but he's, he's not saying it's a bad thing. That's the difference, I guess. He he loves it. This is what he always wanted. He said so. He he calls this pricing pollution. He he wants the price of oil and gas and everything that needs a tractor on a farm or combine to grow and and a truck to ship it to market. He wants all of that to become more
6: expensive. So you live less and you're happy about it. I mean, take a look at this. Hey everyone, we've just released Canada's emissions reduction plan. It's about clean air. It's about good jobs, it's about a strong economy, it's about a better future. With this concrete and ambitious plan, we're going to help people make the switch to electric vehicles. We're going to help industries switch towards clean tech. We're going to help you green your home. We're going to help the oil and gas industry reduce its emissions. We're going to use nature to fight climate change. All of this and more. It's an ambitious and responsible plan it is good news for all of us. Good news as we look into a future of better jobs and a stronger economy while we protect our environment for future generations. This is what we've always done, and with this plan, we get to step up to do even more together. So you see, he's not against high prices for gasoline. He likes
0: them to force you off of gas and into electric vehicles that are twice the price of regular cars. You would never make that decision on your own unless gasoline was extremely expensive. You would never choose to pay twice as much for a car. Unreliable electric vehicles. You can't go long distances in an electric vehicle. They don't work well in the cold. It's an elite luxury thing. Trudeau is giving you that choice in a harsh way. He's saying, I'm going to make you pay so much more for gas. Or you could buy a rich Tesla. Canada, by the way, is sitting on the third largest oil reserves in the world. Oil and gas, that's what's actually giving Russia its power over Europe, by the way. It's giving it its cash. Trudeau won't pump more oil, though. He won't restart those pipelines he killed, though. He thinks the crisis isn't too much Russian oil. He thinks the crisis is too much Canadian oil. Take a listen to this.
6: I know some people will say a war is no time for climate action, for looking to clean solutions to build a competitive economy. the same people said the pandemic was no time for climate action. We didn't let them stop us then, either. Responsible leadership demanded that we tackle the crisis at hand and build for the future. So to those people, I say this. This is no time for excuses. It is the time for even bolder climate action, because it is always the right time to face a crisis head-on. It is always the right time to have workers' backs, and it is always the right time to build a good future for all Canadians. So what's this about? This is, this
0: is about Trudeau signing a deal with Jagmeet Singh and the extremist wing of the NDP. The NDP used to be for working people, now it's not. This was the payoff to the NDP. And frankly, to every green energy lobbyist and scammer who's going to get massive subsidies from Trudeau now. you just got to follow the money. But the money has to come from somewhere. They're printing a lot of it. That's a cause of inflation. But it's also coming from you, through your taxes, carbon taxes. They're going up next week to support this scheme. And you're paying more at the pump. Because do you really think you're going to be getting into a Tesla this year? You can't even afford to live in a house. Justin Trudeau thinks this is all good news. You'll have a smaller carbon footprint while he jets around the world hobnobbing with the rich and famous. Trudeau has taken away so many of your civil rights. Now he's taking away what's left of your prosperity. You will be poor, you will not be free, and you will be miserable, but hey, hmm. least you can watch some funny videos on TikTok, right? Stay with us for more with Ben Weingarten. Well, Joe Biden has been saying a lot of very interesting things about the Russia-Ukraine war. I think they're a little too interesting, a little too flavorful. Let me show you three recent examples. Here he is talking to U.S. troops who are not in Ukraine, but it very much sounds like they either have been or he's about to send them into Ukraine, which uh, might entangle the United States in a world war. Take a listen. What do you think he means?
4: Now, But the Ukrainian people, Ukrainian people have a lot of backbone. They have a lot of guts, and I'm sure you're observing it. And I don't mean just the military, which is we've been trained in since back when they uh, Russia moved into the uh, and in, in the southeast, southeast um, Ukraine, but also the average citizen. Look at how they're stepping up. Look at how they're stepping up. And you're going to see when you're there, and you've, some, some of you have been there, you're going to see, you're going to see women, young people standing, standing in the middle of the front of a damn tank, just saying, I'm not leaving. I'm holding my ground. They're incredible. But they take a lot of inspiration from us. And you know, a woman who just died, the Secretary of State, used to have an expression, she said, we are the essential nation. It sounds like a bit of a hyperbole, but the truth of the matter is, you are the organizing principle around which the rest of the world is, the free world is moving.
0: It was a little bit vague, but it certainly implied that Americans are going to Ukraine. Here's another thing that Biden said. If Russia uses chemical weapons, America will respond in kind. That implies that America would use chemical weapons. Am my misunderstanding here, listen to the man himself.
2: Sir, you've made it very clear in this conflict that you do not want to see World War III. But is it possible that in expressing that so early that you were too quick to rule out direct military intervention in this war, could Putin have been emboldened knowing that you are not going to get involved directly in this conflict? No one knows. And to clarify on chemical weapons, could, if chemical weapons were used in Ukraine, would that trigger a military spo- response from NATO? It
4: would, be, it would trigger a response in kind, whether or not, you're asking whether NATO would cross, we'd make that decision at the time.
0: Here's another thing that Biden said, and this sure sounds like he's talking about regime change. For example, like when the United States went into Libya and deposed Muammar Gaddafi, Is Joe Biden saying the same thing about the president of Russia? Here you be the judge. For God's sake, this man cannot remain
4: in power. God bless you all, and may God defend our freedom, and may God protect our troops. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Well, those certainly don't sound like words that will de-escalate the war. Uh, But when Peter Ducey of Fox News asked Joe Biden about those very things, Biden denied even saying them here. Look at this very interesting exchange between Ducey and Biden.
3: Are you worried that other leaders in the world are going to start to doubt that America is back if some of these big things that you say on the world stage keep getting walked back? What's getting walked back? it sound like, just in the last couple days, uh, it sounded like you told U.S. troops they were going to Ukraine. It sounded like you said it was possible the U.S. would use a chemical weapon. And it sounded like you were calling for regime change in Russia. And we know... None of the three occurred. None of the three occurred? None of the three. Mr.
4: <laughs> President? You, you interpret the language that way. I was talking to the troops. We are talking about helping train the troops in that are the, the Ukrainian troops that are in Poland. That's what the context. I sat there with those guys for a couple hours. That's
3: what we talked about. So when you said you're going to see when you're there, you were not intending I to I was referring
4: to with, meeting with and talking with the uh, Ukrainian troops that were in Poland.
3: And when you said a chemical weapon use by Russia would trigger a response in kind.
4: It will trigger a significant response.
3: What does that mean?
4: I'm not going to tell you. Why would I tell you? You've got to be silly.
3: The world wants to know. The
4: world wants to know a lot of things. I'm not telling them what the response would be. Then then Russia knows the response.
0: You know, Donald Trump, uh, they said about him, don't take him literally, but take him seriously. That when he would tweet, he might use florid language, but there was a true meaning underneath. What's interesting is that when Biden is out riffing on his own, the White House is saying a very different message. And you can see someone snapped a picture of the talking points, the corrections that Biden was given, we don't know by whom, to uh, walk back his earlier bellicose statements, very destabilizing. You know, it's tough to know who to believe on Russia, Ukraine. I mean, let's take it as granted that uh, Vladimir Putin is a former KGB agent, he's bloody-minded, he's likely a killer, at least uh, historically. Uh, The invasion of Ukraine is an illegal violation of a foreign sovereign uh, country. Uh, We can say all these things, we can agree on it, he's an imperialist, he's a bad guy. But what is the proper response of the West? What is the West's interest in Ukraine and how far should we go? Luckily, The smartest man that Joe Biden knows is a bit of an expert in Ukraine. I'm talking about Hunter Biden, who Joe Biden says is the smartest man he knows. And in fact, Hunter Biden was so smart and knowledgeable about Ukraine, he was paid, I think, 80 grand a month by various Ukrainian oil companies because he's a real expert. We learned a lot of this from Hunter Biden's own laptop that The New York Times now admits is completely Real. Joining us now via Skype from the United States is our friend Ben Weingarten, contributor to Newsweek magazine and author of the book American Ingrate about Ilhan Omar. Ben, I was having a little bit of fun there. Look, no one likes Vladimir Putin. No one thinks he's a liberal. No one thinks he's a Democrat or a friend of the West. I agree that he's evil. The question is what to do about it. I'm not sure if uh, Joe Biden's in control or if others in the White House are. They seem to have different messages. What do you think?
5: Well, it's funny that you talk about Vladimir Putin being no liberal and no one that the West would want to do business with. And you go back and you look at the profiles of Vladimir Putin some, I guess, two decades almost on now. And they were fawning over him as the great hope for Russia, the very same people who today call Vladimir Putin the equivalent of Hitler and seem willing to risk a World War III by imposing a a U.S. governed no-fly zone, which could lead to a shooting war with the nuclear arms. Russia. Uh, and let's, let's point out a couple other things. Y- you talk about the fact that the White House has had to walk back the commander-in-chief's statements on issues which could lead to potentially a nuclear exchange at the end of the day. We have had a policy regarding certain issues like China, Taiwan, for example, of strategic ambiguity historically. This is not strategic ambiguity. This is a total lack of clarity, apparently, in terms of what the commander-in-chief actually believes and seeks, what those who are his handlers actually believe and seek, and it leads to a question of who actually is in power. Sometimes unpredictability can be a useful and positive thing in context of issues of matters of war and peace, but in this case, it's really disturbing. It's incredibly disturbing when the president's comments have to repeatedly be walked back. And then the last point I'll make, and I say this sort of sheepishly, but sort of seriously as well, because it is a deathly serious issue. Does Joe Biden want Vladimir Putin to go before or after his regime helps negotiate an Iran deal 2.0 on the Biden administration's behalf? That alone speaks to the total strategic incomprehensibility on its face of what the policy is. But ultimately, the policy results in a stronger Russia, a stronger China, and a stronger Iran, and the American people, by the way, and others around the world, of course, suffering under the sanctions that have been imposed today.
0: Yeah, you're so right about the difference between a certain unpredictability in style versus a confusion. I think it's different to be unpredictable, to be confusing. Joe Biden is, is confusing. He sends two contradictory messages at the same time. Believe it or not, Trevor Noah, and I I played this clip the other day when we had Joel Pollack on. Trevor Noah, who is quite a liberal comedian, actually, um, seems to have sobered up a bit watching Joe Biden in office. And here's a little clip he did the other night. And I showed this once before, but it's so on point. Whatever you thought of Trump, you didn't mess with him because you didn't know exactly. You knew what his interests were. No one one denied he was sort of an American firster. Uh, he, He didn't he, he didn't suffer fools. He was undiplomatic, but but in that he would say things clearly rather than in vague gauzy language. But he wasn't herky jerky. He wasn't uh, hot and cold. Yes and no. He was Trevor Noah doing quite a good job of summing up the difference between Biden and Trump.
5: There is no denying that Saudi Arabia isn't playing ball with Joe Biden. And you know what? You can say what you want. But this would have never happened to Donald Trump. Never. No one was ever ignoring Donald Trump's calls. Yeah, because if you ignored Donald Trump's calls, you didn't know how he would respond. Maybe he'd send an angry tweet, or maybe he'd just like ban your country from everything. You don't know. That's why I bet in these situations, Biden actually wishes that he could hire Trump to step in as president wildcard. You know, just keep everyone on their toes. Because if Trump was calling, you best believe the
7: UAE, they'll be racing to pick up the phone. Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, we're here. We're here. Hello? Too late, Ahmed. You made me wait two rings. We're bombing the UAE and the UFC
0: just in case. And the thing is, his point about taking the phone calls, I think that's really on point because Biden sent emissaries to Venezuela, to Saudi. To the other opec regimes and said will you replace russian oil some of them didn't even take his phone call you would never not take a phone call from donald trump Uh, i mean you first of all you would be very interested in what he wanted to say you knew he was the decider you knew he was the boss or at least if he said something that was the law and you were you either respected him or you were afraid of him or something that's gone. I If you wanted, if, if there was someone on the phone from America, I don't even know who you would want on the other line to know you're dealing with the decider, Ben.
5: Yeah, maybe it's Ron Quayne, Maybe it's Susan Rice. Maybe it's Jake Sullivan. It's hard to tell. And that should really disturb all Americans. And this gets to kind of the one of the implicit themes that's baked into the walking back of pretty much everything the president says of substance, which is first of all, who is running things? And then why do you have the question of who is running things? And that gets to the question of the mental acuity, the faculties, the fitness of the commander-in-chief. And of course, you know they always attack Trump. Oh, his mental fitness, et cetera. He's, He's so irascible. He's all over the place. But to your point, you knew exactly where he stood in terms of we are going to defend America's interest. To do so, we are going to try to make ourselves as strong as possible. We are going to try to create partnerships and alliances to reduce America's direct burden and risk in certain situations, as every power who looks at the world realistically tries to do in pursuit of making life better for the American people. And the question with respect to Russia, Ukraine, which the Biden administration has been loath to answer, and of course, which the press never asks, is what would be in America's national interest in this situation ultimately? And what steps is the administration taking to fulfill those ambitions to achieve those ambitions while protecting our interests from the start and that that sort of lack of clarity the incomprehensibility of you're going to you're going to attack and try to essentially cancel Russia from the international financial system but then you're going to make carve outs with respect to oil of course the strategically most significant area and then okay you might backtrack on that but then in an Iran deal context you might may have a carve out there for Iranian oil sales to Russia And then you're going to go to Venezuela, who is an ally, of course, of Iran and Russia, and go begging for oil from there. And then also, you're going to try to have Russia negotiate an Iran deal 2.0 on your behalf, even though you say that Vladimir Putin has to go. And then you're going to come begging to the Saudis, who you've browbeaten from the start, starting with continuing to perpetuate the narrative about Khashoggi and that governing all of our relations with Saudi Arabia. And of course, Saudi Arabia is not going to take your call. And by the way, is going to hedge by cultivating relations with adversaries to the U.S., including Russia and China. And so at the end of the day, you look at this picture and ultimately, what does the Biden strategy, to the extent there is one, appear to be? It's to make it look like you really care about what happens in Russia and Ukraine, but actually impose real pain On us without seeking a de escalation scenario and maybe a neutrality scenario, because maybe that's the best thing you're going to get there. A buffer state that stands equally to the extent it's possible between the US and Russia, to the extent that's the best way you can have a cessation of hostilities there. Instead, you're you're potentially going to lead to an escalation in that situation. And at the same time, you're going to empower Iran and again, try to make it the strong horse in the region like the Obama-Biden regime did, of course, to the detriment of U.S. national interest. And of course, the power that we're not talking about, which benefits most from all of this, is China.
0: You know, it's so crazy how this suddenly became the center of the world's conversation. I mean, I, I don't deny that, you, that Ukraine has its national interests, has its sovereignty, um, has its civil rights. I, I don't deny this is a terrible thing that's happening to them. But how this became the center of American uh, national energy and, glo- and NATO and every country, and then the immediate, I, I don't even want to say McCarthyist, just the insane Russophobia. Um, it, it's so, and, and the, the economic you know it's just how did this suddenly become the most important thing in the world it's almost like you know let's shift subjects away from the pandemic which was fading we need something else to be riveting we need another crisis we need something else to change the the large political narrative as we head into november's midterm elections i'm not saying that that is the rationale here but that's certainly the effect i i just don't understand the obsession with ukraine But earlier in our conversation, I referred to Hunter Biden, the crack addict son, who Joe Biden laughably called the smartest man he knows. The reason I'm mentioning that is I'm not looking to pick on a family member who's screwed up. But Hunter Biden had huge business deals in Ukraine. And actually, in Russia, he took more than a million dollars from oligarchs, you know, the former the wife of the former mayor of Moscow. Like, there's Hunter Biden is so interwoven in Moscow-Ukraine intrigues, and and there were some revelations from his validated and verified laptop that touch on the current quarrel, weren't there? there? There was something in there about Hunter Biden facilitating grants to a biological research station in Ukraine, is that right?
5: The New York Post has reported. Well, first of all, let's point out that Russia put out as you know Russian propaganda, essentially, which of course our betters will tell us has to be dismissed. Rather than looking at looking at it on the merits and then saying, is there a there there? Is there a kernel of truth? Because usually in all disinformation, the best kind of disinformation in traditional spycraft, there's always a kernel of truth. They basically said, well, look with these bio labs, Joe Biden himself is you know in some ways tied to these labs, and okay dismiss it as Russian propaganda. But then you look at what the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop. And as the New York Post has reported, based on the contents of that laptop, one of Hunter Biden's investment vehicles put, I believe, $500,000 into an entity that was doing bio research in Ukraine and actually linked up senior officials in this entity that was doing bio research in Ukraine to Burisma, where he sat on the board and, as you noted, I think was making something like $83,333. Don't quote me on that a month uh, for his great expertise in global energy markets. And let's also put this in context of the fact that it was the Obama-Biden administration who essentially helped install the replacement to Yanukovych to make Ukraine, of course, a a U.S.-aligned nation there. And Joe Biden managed the Ukraine portfolio himself. And as we have reported at Real Clear Investigations, Paul Sperry did an extraordinary job putting forth this expose, showing the DNC, senior Democrat Party officials, and then people in the intelligence community, the national security apparatus, and beyond in the Obama administration colluded with Ukrainian government officials to work against Donald Trump, and ultimately, of course, to help Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. There was genuine Ukrainian DNC, Obama administration collusion, Interference in the 2016 election on behalf of Hillary Clinton and to the detriment or the attempted detriment of then candidate Donald Trump. So the ties are extremely deep and extensive between the Democrat Party and Ukraine. That's one point worth making. Hunter Biden himself is a singularly important official uh, individual in this link because of the provenance to his father, who ran the Ukraine portfolio. And then you have, of course, the massive anti-Russian shift that transpired, starting with the fake Russiagate collusion narrative. And it's really been a remarkable political epoch to see this transformation of a Democrat party who, during the throes of the Cold War, it was those on the left, purported liberals, progressives and beyond, who I think at best we could say were oftentimes apologists or appeasers for the Soviet regime, sometimes far worse now the Democrat Party has become the ultimate anti-Russian hawk party under Vladimir Putin. W- was was the Soviet Union worse or was Vladimir Putin's Russia worse? We can have a debate about that. But it's fascinating to see the shift on a dime. And it seems to align with the political winds. You know, uh,
0: Donald Trump, Jr., Eric Trump, the, the Trump lads, um They were still doing business deals. Every single business deal was scrutinized. The obsession with Trump's taxes going back years. uh, Every single business deal was combed through by the media. They went to court. There were, you know, state attorneys general trying to get in there. Um, I compare that with the complete lack of interest, the forceful, willful lack of interest into Hunter Biden who has no genuine business interests of his own. I mean, the Trumps are into hotels and golf courses and casinos and luxury brands. And you can turn your nose up at that stuff or or whatever. But it actually, the business predates his political campaign. Hunter Biden has no special expertise. He has no success in business. It was all riding the coattails of his influential dad. And for him to be up to the eyeballs with oligarchs in both countries, and with Kim, you—we're talking about oil and gas, we're talking about biological warfare, and Hunter's in the middle of both of them. I—I <laughs> I read a stat the other day, uh, and I, I don't want to get it wrong, but that CNN and the New York Times have not used the word Hunter Biden in certain number of days, like a hundred plus days. It just simply has not appeared in their publications, and. Like, I don't think a day went by when Donald Trump Jr. was not in the pages of the New York Times for some, this will get him now. This scandal will finally bring down Donald Trump. None of them ever did. But their obsession with the Trump boys, just because they were uh, compared to Hunter, whose only business dealings is conflicts of interest involving his dad. I, I think there's a lot of media malpractice here.
5: Uh, the media it plays a unique, is uniquely culpable. Culpable in corruption against the American public by its unwillingness, It's in, not an inability, of course, its lack of a will to follow these leads, investigate the New York Times laughably, 17 months on and 24 paragraphs into a piece that doesn't even bill itself as saying, Mea culpa, we're sorry this actually was authentic, the laptop content. And here's why that's important and why that's important to your point. And, and it's sort of the inverse of the Trump family is that the entire Biden family business has been monetizing the patriarchs 50 years in Washington, D.C. That's the inverse of the Trump family business. And that monetization of the father has opened America up to substantial compromise, particularly because of Hunter Biden's depravity. Obviously, that opens itself up for blackmail and a whole slew of other national security issues. But more, to the, uh, more seriously, I think, for U.S. national security, arguably, are these dealings with corrupted Ukrainian entities, corrupted by their nature, Russian individuals, and then, of course, communist China and other nations as well. There's evidence out there. There's been reporting recently on his ties to Kazakhstani oligarchs, and really oligarchs all over the world. And this goes back decades with the Biden family. It's not just Hunter Biden. Mm -hmm. We put together a Hunter Biden reader at Real Clear Investigations, and we've chronicled the history of all of the Biden family members' shady business dealings, which, of course, only exist. Because Joe Biden was a senior member of the Senate for decades and then a vice president and now a president. So it's hugely significant for American national security. The question that has to be asked with every single one of these foreign policy issues is, President Biden, to what extent do your family's dealings impact these policies? That question is never asked. And the last point I'll make briefly is, it's also not just Hunter that's been shielded. Why is the press and why is the DOJ and the FBI pursuing Project Veritas so vigorously over their, by all means, it seems lawful efforts to obtain and then authenticate Ashley Biden's diary. Why are they trying to destroy Project Veritas over that? So the protection racket is incredible here, the, the appearance of one. Anyway, and then to your point, every single day it was the walls are closing in. Here's the next bombshell against the Trump family. And that jihad, of course, continues.
0: Yeah, yeah, just incredible. Um, I got a question for you How do you think it's going to end? In Ukraine. Again, it's hard for me to tell what's true and what's propaganda on both sides. I really can't tell. Um, I I, I saw in a Russia, I'm not going to say Russia sympathetic, but Russia Fair publication called Zero Hedge, um, that the ruble has returned um, to its previous value, that after being battered by the original deplatforming of the Russian financial system, the ruble's back. Uh, You point out that Russia, despite America's condemnation of it publicly, is integral to Biden's attempts to negotiate a new Iran deal. Um, I understand that Mariupol, uh, an important city, has fallen to Russia. You correct me if I'm wrong on that. Uh, I I read every day how the Russian uh, army is overstretched and how so many generals are being killed and it's a total disaster for them. That may well be. I mean, the Red Army is used to throwing men into the meat grinder, whether it's to take Berlin or to take Kabul. But it looks to me like like Putin might actually end this thing the way he said he would, which is to destroy some of the Azov Nazi battalions in Ukraine, to, you know, pull Ukraine out of the uh, rearmament mode that, I, that some of the hawkish uh, Americans wanted it in, and to... Um, I don't know, to, to force it to become more neutral as opposed to NATO's doorstep, you know, NATO's neighbor. I I don't know. I mean I I don't I, I don't fathom that Putin actually wanted to totally absorb the entire country. I think it wanted to smash it into neutrality and destroy some particularly partisan opponents. I I don't know. I think that I think it could possibly end that way with another round of annexations. It's hard for me to even have the facts upon which to make predictions because I can't trust a word I see. What do you think?
5: Well, that last point is a really critical one. It's really tough to, to separate f- uh, fact from fiction, from narrative, from spin, by very nature of the fact that you're dealing with matters of national security and foreign policy. And then you layer on the fact that the Russians and the Ukrainians are both experts in propaganda. And then you factor in, how much Western intelligence has discredited itself with it, with its hyper politicization. So I struggle like you do to discern fact from fiction. I, I, I think it is notable that given our understanding of the strengths of the Russian military, that this was not a cakewalk for them of just rampaging through the country to the extent that that was the strategy. The strategy seemed to be sort of to encircle the strategically significant areas and then start to press forward. Uh, while not trying, while not undermining themselves in the public eye by killing th- tens of thousands of civilians in the process, I don't think it would be in Vladimir Putin's interest to ultimately occupy and absorb Ukraine. Yeah, the, the method that's been employed elsewhere is to try to install a puppet or at least someone who's a, a very friendly a proxy in power. I don't know how this ultimately ends. There is danger to the extent it drags on and to the extent, of course, Vladimir Putin feels that his whole reign is under threat. That's why I think the absolute best case scenario would be a hopefully near-term de-escalation. You've seen Zelensky himself sort of admit that he's willing to talk about a a neutral Ukraine or at least a Ukraine that will not be joining NATO, that that's off the table. And I think that's a, a notable... I guess sort of concession relative to what Ukraine's position had been before. I think the best case scenario is a truly neutral Ukraine. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want to opine about you know what demilitarization means and should Ukraine be willing to put that on the table? Would Would you trust being having no military with Russia at your doorstep and having engaged in these incursions? I don't know, but I think the best case scenario would be a situation of a cessation in fighting, de-escalation and not a dragging on, which could lead to miscalculation and ultimately ensnaring Western powers in a battle which ultimately will not redound to our interests. And and the last point I'll make is, again, about the lack of seriousness of the West. While this has become the, the pivotal issue in our discourse and beyond, the first response should have been unleashing Western energy. And while European powers have to some extent indicated that they're willing to turn around against the green agenda, haven't seen it there and haven't seen it here yet either. And even though obviously that, that can't be, you know, oil can't be on and drilling operations and nuclear operations and the like can't be stood up immediately. It's interesting to see that that was not the immediate first move. And if you were really serious about this, Obviously, oil and the money that stems from it is the lifeblood of the Russian regime. That was not the first move. And that, I think, spoke a little bit to the disingenuousness, at least, of the initial response and sort of the cost-free virtue signaling that we've seen from our betters in the Western ruling class.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, Canada has even more oil than the United States does, even though we don't produce as much. We have much larger reserves, the third largest in the world in our oil sands. And it's notable that Trudeau, for all his virtue signaling about banning oligarchs you know, from Scotiabank and the Royal Bank of Canada. I don't think they were actually hiding their money in Canadian banks. So uh, and they weren't sailing uh, their yachts up to St. Lawrence and so they don't have villas in Inovic. So I, I think most of his sanctions were just for show. Um, it's notable that the one thing he could have done, which would have said, to heck with it, we're going to produce oil and gas, we're the, literally the third largest, after Venezuela and Saudi Arabia, Canada is the third largest oil reserve country in the world. And he could have said, I will free Europe from Russian energy and produce it, replace it with Canadian ethical oil, ethical gas. He held the line and he said, oh, and he actually got on the phone with Zelensky and said, we'll share green technology with you. <laughs> um, what a laugh. And I think you're right. There's a lot of virtue signaling. I just don't understand how this country, which I have no disrespect for. In fact, 119 years ago, my own family came from Dnipro in uh, central eastern Ukraine. I have no antipathy towards the place whatsoever. I'm sympathetic to them. I just can't believe we're all talking, worrying, threatening to go to war, letting the entire economic system of the world be threatened by this issue, which seems so contrived and concocted. I don't know. I find the whole thing very frustrating, Ben, and uh, hopefully, hopefully there'll be a peaceful conclusion to this soon.
5: The question that ought to be asked is, who benefits? And if it's not clear that it's not the free people of these sovereign nations in the West. And you have to ask, who is agenda are our leaders serving? And that's not a commentary on the idea that Ukraine should defend itself to the death, that it ought to be a sovereign, free and a relatively free and independent country, and that Putin is the aggressor here. And that it would be great to see the Russian army bled and Putin deterred and turned back. But it's the job of our leaders to defend our national interests and our liberty and justice in the process. And I think it's an open question here, at at very best, whether those interests are being served by the response to date.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Ben Weigarten. great to catch up with you. Nice to see you again. And uh, just delighted to see your column in Newsweek. It's such a pleasure to have your voice there and and keep it up.
5: Thanks so much. Really appreciate it.
0: Stay with us. Welcome back to your letters. KJS says, none of the nine charges is for supporting a convoy, but one of the nine charges is for assaulting a cop. Talking about Randy Hillier. You know, I, I, the video of him assaulting the cop is so laughable, I, and, I, and I saw some reports from the bail hearing that no cop was touched. Just one cop felt afraid or something, as if so afraid that they waited a month before laying the charges. This is a stitch up, as they say. It's very, it's very interesting. I see that um, a senior military commander named Vance, who was charged with uh, some criminal conduct in the military setting, he, was, he pled guilty, he was convicted, but he's getting a discharge. He will not have a criminal record. The judge says, oh, you're a great guy, no problem. That's the difference between being a friend of the establishment, oh, you're a great guy, yeah, no, no criminal record for you, and being someone the establishment hates, uh, Randy Hilliard, Tamara Litch, Pastor Arthur Pavlovsky. I don't think we have one set of rules for everyone, and that's a big problem. Lisa B says next, Trudeau will mandate that vehicle manufacturers must eliminate the installation of horns. (laughs) I think that's sort of funny. Um, I would certainly mandate the elimination of horns connected to door entry system and car alarms. Oh, I hear what you're saying because some of those alarms go off. You know what? I think Trudeau has uh, too much regulation over our lives. And I think he's a bit too thin-skinned about horn honking. Um, They're literally saying it's code for Heil Hitler. These are crazy people. Jean-Yves Prévost says, Most of us are still talking about the Oscars. We are asleep. Yeah. I mean, it was an interesting cultural moment when... uh, Will uh, Smith clocked Chris Rock in the face for making a joke about his wife. There's a lot of personal history there. I think it was a welcome change in the conversation from the pandemic from Ukraine. And although it was goofy um, and, you know, junk food, so to speak, to talk about it, I think it was a good break from the things. Um, But, yeah, it is a distraction from some heavy news out there. I guess you could think of that as that good or bad. I think we can overdose on heavy news sometimes. That's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. Keep fighting for freedom. And let me leave you with our video of the day from uh, Adam Sos. Pastor Arthur Pavlovsky is going home to his family after 50 days in prison. 50 days in prison. What a difference between him and General Vance, eh?
7: All right, see you tomorrow. Adam Sos here for Rebel News. Pastor Arthur Pawlowski has been incarcerated for coming up on 50 days now for daring to attend the Coots blockade as a pastor and for daring to preach words of encouragement to the folks down there. For that, apparently in Alberta, you can be charged under the Critical Infrastructure Defence Act and charged with inciting mischief. The, some of the folks down there who are actually blockading the border were not even charged under those same conditions. But apparently Pastor Arthur Pawlowski is public enemy number one and any charges that can possibly a- be applied to him certainly will. So for preaching there, as a result of those two charges, he has been incarcerated for 50 days. He was actually denied bail on those charges early earlier this month than last month, in fact. And he was sitting in jail since that time, largely in solitary confinement, having an incredibly difficult time like I said, he was denied bail. Violent criminals and serial offenders are often granted bail, but not Pastor Arter Pawlowski. Well, Sarah Miller has been working tirelessly on Arter's legal defense with her team at JSS Barristers, thanks to your donations at SaveArtur.com. And last week on Friday, she successfully appealed that denial of bail. So Pastor Arthur Pawlowski was granted bail on those terms. Unfortunately, there was other charges pending, contempt of court charges, and a number of health Order charges still pending that had yet to be resolved before Pastor Archer could return home to his family. All of that stemming from Pastor Archer attending protests, opening his church and uh, ultimately feeding homeless people on the streets of Calgary in defiance of COVID-19 restrictions. Fortunately we do have some good news and I'm going to be joined by Sarah Miller in just a moment to discuss that but it looks like the Crown and Archer's defense have come to terms to secure Archer's bail on those charges as well so it is very likely that Pastor Archer will be home with his family this week on Wednesday. So very good news for the Pawlowski family. I'm going to speak now in just a moment with Sarah Miller to get an update on the successful bail appeal as well as the plans for Pastor Arthur going home.
2: Yeah, so uh, like you said, it's under a a publication ban, so I can't talk a lot about it, but what I can say is that ultimately Justice Kendall, she made the right decision and she released... uh, Arthur Pawlowski from uh, prison on the conditions that we proposed. So they are quite strict. Um, this is not um, the the full-blown celebratory type situation mm-hmm. that we would hope for because uh, he is under very strict conditions. But certainly being under strict conditions at home with his family is, is a far better cry than being either at the Calgary Remand Centre or the Edmonton Remand Centre on uh, charges where he's now got, uh, as of tomorrow, 50 days of uh, pre-trial custody and we don't think he's even if he was found guilty that any judge would sentence him for that length of period so it's ultimately a very good thing that he's now released
7: So that's great and uh, ultimately we we had that good news come out on Friday Um, but there was some sort of uh, some loopholes to jump through there were a series of other charges that basically came about either pre-existing or came about while Pastor Arthur was incarcerated for these 50 days Um, and those terms had to be discussed Um, and we had to we had to reach an agreement or you had to reach an agreement with the Crown effectively on how bail could be granted on that so tell us about that process.
2: Yeah, so uh, the charges that uh, we just dealt with bail on Friday on are the mischief charges arising out of coots. Since he was detained on those, uh, the, the he's received additional charges regarding breach of probation, and the probation, as some people remember, arises from Justice Germain's order uh, and probation uh, related to the civil contempt. So there's allegations of that. They all predate the coots matter, but uh, weren't laid until after he was detained. So of course, then once you get release on the mischief we have to have release hearings on the probation now it happened to work out really well as far as timing goes because the order that was issued on friday is now only taken effect this evening essentially like well i think it was about 4 p.m that it actually was signed and filed and and all of that so um tomorrow morning you know he ends up spending an additional 12 hours in jail maybe 16 whatever it ends up being so it ends up not being too bad as far as timing goes of course it would have been lovely if he was out today uh but uh tomorrow uh my colleague has is going to attend the bail hearing and and enter into a consent release with the crown prosecutor so uh it was a a brief uh and quick Resolution with the crown to get him released on those other charges.
7: Well, I'm sure pastor Archer would have been uh, happy to be out today It is his birthday, but I'm sure the uh, the the ruling that he will get to go home and be home with his family um, a good birthday present so to speak for pastor Archer Pawlowski Um, I just, I just wanted to touch base and I talked to Nathaniel and the family a bit about this and uh, I know that they've been, uh, they've been upset, they've, they felt like they've been targeted and they were very happy to see what they saw as some sort of common sense from the courts, like, no, he's not dangerous, he can go home. Um, uh, what, what's your sentiment? You've been working on this so closely, obviously you're, you're close to these matters, but do you feel like there's been uh, uh, maybe a little bit more uh, justice done here with Pastor Arthur returning home to his family?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that detaining him any further, well, detaining him at first instance, I thought was was not necessary in the circumstances. This is a 49-year-old man who's never had any criminal charges, is expressing his point of view on a new and you know unprecedented situation. For him to express his support vehemently, the Crown says is problematic. And And not only problematic but criminal that's yet to be seen and for him to be incarcerated for now 50 days uh, just seems so so wrong in law Um, obviously the the right decision has finally been made I'm I'm thrilled for that Um, and I think that that's really where we where we need to be is is with him released with his family now um, you know I I'm not thrilled about how strict the conditions are but that's you know what has to be done in in this current climate in this current situation and with um the other outstanding criminal charges that uh remain pending with mr Pawlowski.
7: now as we kind of mentioned this isn't he's free and everything is good to go for people out there we want to make clear pastor arthur Pawlowski likely has years of legal battles ahead of him to address these matters what Pastor Archer will return home on Wednesday. He'll get to be with his family under these very strict conditions, um, largely staying at home aside from when he's serving as a pastor or doing the odd... Uh, Aaron, very strict measures in place. But what is the legal horizon like for Pastor Art Paveloski? What is ahead of him?
2: He has uh, quite a few criminal trials coming up. So uh, he's got some uh, trials in October and November uh, and also a trial in June. So the trial in June is for the Public Health Act ticket uh, that ordinarily for most people, they saw $1,000 fines. Uh, the Crown is proceeding against him uh, under the Public Health Act, a different uh, different procedure under the public health act so he's facing up to a hundred thousand dollars for attending um, a, a gathering at the Olympic near the Olympic Plaza sorry it's actually in front of the community or City Hall um, so we're facing that in June he's got that ticket trial to do in June um, there was no pay option with that so most people who got ticketed under the Public Health Act for gathering and access had fine options um, presented to them. Mr. Poplowski did not. So he'll have to deal with that trial in June. Uh, Then we have trials in October and November. um, And then this mischief charge will be scheduled when uh, hopefully on April 1st, we'll have this Friday, we'll have a, a date scheduled for that trial.
7: Well, thanks so much for this update. I know that it's a lot to get through, but I want to thank you so much. You're doing very important work, and it's great to see that Pastor Arthur Pawlowski will be home with his family. Thanks again for taking time to give us this update. I know people out there love the legal updates. As you heard, Pastor Arthur Pawlowski's battles are far from over. If you want to support his legal efforts and keep Sarah Miller and the team at JSS Barristers working to free Pastor Archer Pawlowski permanently, not just temporarily under strict conditions, you can do so by going to savearcher.com. Any donations you make there go to the Democracy Fund, a registered Canadian charity, so you'll receive a tax receipt for that donation, and those funds will be used to keep Sarah Miller working and to keep Pastor Archer out of jail. I want to thank you guys so much for tuning in. For Rebel News, I'm Adam Sos.